Oh, well, good morning again, Gospel Hope. Good, good. Good to see your smiling faces as usual. You are yet back for another dose of ecclesiology. I love that. Um, awesome. So if we could, uh, let's uh, give our time back to the Lord and let's get down to it, shall we? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning and we hand our hearts over to you. We hand our, our minds, Heavenly Father. We surrender our faculties to, to you. Um, we believe in what your word says, that wherever we would gather in your name, O oh God, that you would make your presence uniquely available, Lord God, to, to those that will obey in a special way. And so we look out, we just pray for your presence this morning, that we would experience the promise of that. We pray, O oh God, that we would experience the promise, Lord God, of the, the word's own self-testimony of being sharper than any two-edged sword. And that, Lord God, we would, we would hear clearly doctrine and we would not shy away from reproof, correction, and we would gladly receive instruction that we would be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Lord God, we ask that, uh, yes, you would show us our sin, but you would also show us our Savior, and you would encourage us, Lord God, to run to him quickly in all the areas that we discover that need to be uh, surrendered and repented from. Lord God, I give myself over to you, recognizing that... Um, um, Lord God, notes are not enough, that we need your spirit. And I just ask that the uh, life of your word would make me completely invisible as we, your people, Lord God, seek to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So as you heard earlier, we are in the second leg of our ecclesiology series. Last week, we started the series of ecclesiology, and I'm, in, I'm emphasizing that word to make sure it kind of works into our vocabulary. Ecclesiology being the study of the what? The church, right? The ecclesia are the called out ones, right? And so we're studying that. Last week when we talked about the church, we wanted to really underscore and emphasize that the church is not a building, but it is a army, a family, and a body, right? Of which you are if you are in Christ, if you have placed your confidence and trust in him. We are going to take a look at today exactly what the Lord has done to provide governance or guidance to this sacred body of his. Now we know that ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the body. This is what the scriptures say, that he is the captain of the Lord's armies. We know that. And that he is, uh, we are joint heirs with him, uh, the family of God, uh, if we are in Christ. And so we have understood something about the leadership that God has for the church that is in the the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also read a passage from the book of Ephesians just a minute ago that said that that same Lord who is head of the body has now given gifts to men so that there would be localized leadership. And we're going to talk about today exactly what the Lord requires or what does localized leadership in the church look like knowing that Jesus is the ultimate head of the body. Uh, as we kind of make our way to the text, how many people remember their days of student government, student body government, high school, wherever it started, elementary school, right? You remember that? You remember your student body uh, president? I don't know how many of we have in here. Keep your hands down because I'm going to make some comments in just a few moments that are not going to make you very proud of being student body president. Uh, but the bottom line is, how many of you remember kind of scratching your head and wondering what in the world were the criteria that got that person in that role? Or others of us, 
you didn't have to scratch your head at all. You knew what it was. It was the person with the best hair, the person with the best looks, the person who was the smartest or the most athletic or some, some kind of combination of the three. We, we've seen this happen. But then just when you thought that in high school you wouldn't have to see that anymore, we recognize that even in the workplace and many other places, we see sometimes leadership awarded to people and we don't know what in the world the criteria could have been to get that guy or to get that person in that role. Was it popularity? Was it prestige? What was it? And so even, I mean, even in the most ultimate sense, I mean, we've seen uh, even within our, our, our political realms at the, at the highest level, we've seen candidates who typically don't meet the traditional profile, who, who win based on popularity in some places. And we see that ripple effect of what we would call political outsiders, being able to capture the hearts and minds of people because people are saying, hey, we want something a little bit different. But, but we all know that there are uh, the, the target or how people come into various roles of leadership can sometimes be quite a moving target. Well, glory be to God, our Lord is not interested in our understanding of leadership within the church being a moving target. Neither is it a, a, a popularity contest, nor it is a, a, a head scratcher, but God wants the governing of his church not to be given to the popular or the charismatic, but to the proven and Christ-minded. Let's say that again. The governance of the church is not given to the popular or the charismatic, but to the proven and Christ-minded. Now, as we take this on, we're going to look at a particular text, but I want you to kind of be aware of where the text is coming from. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 this morning. On our way there, you need to realize that uh, 1 Timothy is a part of a group of books known as the pastoral epistles. This includes 1 and 2 Timothy and also the book of Titus. 1 Timothy could also be noted as a very much a leadership manual given by Paul to his disciple Timothy as to how he should go about setting up order and structure in the local churches. In First and Second Timothy, as well as in the book of Titus, we see various conversations from Paul, various charges and directives around how to entrust the leadership of the church into the hands of faithful people, how to work through various issues that face the church, whether it be doctrinal issues or how to handle certain relational issues. But First and Second Timothy, as well as Titus, make up what we call the pastoral epistles. Can you say that to me? Pastoral epistles. All right. So they are written with the intent to provide a leadership manual to the local church. And out of that book, we grow to understand exactly what the clear criteria are for God's governance, for, for those who would govern and lead in the local church. When we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, we are first introduced to this statement. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, other texts will say, if a person desires the position of, a, of the bishop, he desires a good work. Now, what's interesting about this uh, phrase, uh, this very first phrase, this saying is trustworthy, or this is a trustworthy saying, this phrase is used about four times in the pastoral epistles, and it always precedes where the Apostle Paul is getting to kind of a theological high point, something that he wants to underline, underscore, highlight, circle, and check. 
of the three or four times that he uses this phrase, this saying is trustworthy, we know that everything else that he's been saying before or anything that he's getting ready to say afterwards is of particular and salient importance. And so one of those times that he uses this phrase of the four times of this is a trustworthy statement is here where he says, if a person aspires or if anyone aspires for the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. One of the first things I want to look at are the implications of both position and practice. The implications of position and practice. Let me help you understand where I'm going. How many people here, if uh, you heard someone was a doctor, but you found out they had no patience, that would raise a little bit of a concern? How many of you, if you uh, heard that someone was a uh, renowned attorney but had no clientele, would that raise some element of concern? We, We all recognize that there are certain spaces in life where position only means nothing if there is not a corresponding practice that really comes alongside to validate that. That, that position leadership is never meant to stand alone. As a matter of fact, even outside of the church, when we have people who have titles and positions alone, we become very wary when their positions don't align with their particular practice. And so in the body of Christ, the, the Lord immediately raises up this through the Apostle Paul that if anyone desires the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. He desires a good work. And Paul is going to unpack what makes that work good, what makes that work noble, and exactly what it means for someone to occupy that. And what are the implications of one who desires that position and the corresponding practice? Throughout the scriptures, we know, we, have, we know, if you do some survey and research on this, that the, the terms overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, and shepherd are often used interchangeably. As a matter of fact, listen to this particular uh, text here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, so that's Peter talking, or an apostle, uh, and, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives gives grace to the humble. And so we see here even Peter is using the term elder and shepherd interchangeably and refers to himself even as a fellow shepherd, even refers to Jesus Christ as a chief shepherd there in 1 Peter. In other places in the Bible, we see this great interchange between these terms, overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, and shepherd. But what I find to be interesting about the Bible is that there is no waste in God's economy. If he chooses to use a word, even if they are used synonymously, those words paint for us a particular picture. This idea of one being an overseer immediately maybe gives us uh, ideas of someone is overseeing or supervising or leading something, right? When we hear the idea of a shepherd, however, we who are not, who grow up in Western culture don't necessarily have any immediate pictures of a shepherd, but we've read 
read the 23rd Psalm and maybe even worked through some of the parables. And so we have an idea that a shepherd is a one whose role is not typically identified by his stern leadership or his supervision, but by his great care and concern for those that are under his watch and a deep sense of love, relationship, and ownership. And so I love what the Lord does for us in the Bible by giving us this, 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 this kind of rubber band, right, where we, we see that the overseer, bishop, pastor, elder role includes a care component. It includes a wisdom component as an elder. It includes that, 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 that earnestly, that rebuke component, as we'll talk about in other places, and that bishop, which he's an overseer, seeing the oversight component or the supervisory component. So all of these are baked within to, into the elder or the pastoral role. So when the Apostle Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires for the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Or this is a big job. This isn't just a position. This is going to be quite the practice. And therefore, he gives us these additional criteria. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. He must uh, keep them in all, dig keep in all dignity, his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? I would volunteer the following statement to you this way, that true leadership is not found in position, but in the practice of life and in the engagement of those of life with those we lead. I'll say this. True leadership is not found in position alone, but it is found in the practice of life that we do with those and who we engage and those who we lead. Jesus Christ typifies this most beautifully. The scriptures describe him this way as our high priest, so a position. But look at how the scriptures describe Jesus as a high priest in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. In other words, we do not have a savior who is so high and lifted up and holding a position in a hierarchy that he has no idea what's happening in the lives of the people that he leads. There is true life-on-life -life engagement. Look at what Hebrews says. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The biblical call for leadership is that under shepherds, elders, and pastors would model even the motif of their own savior. That regardless of how high or big your position may be, you have a responsibility to deeply connect with the weaknesses and the sympathies of your people. Leadership is not found in the position alone, but in the practice of life and engagement with those who we lead. Let's look again at verses 2 through 7. There's a lot here. We've seen the implications of both position and practice when it comes to the elder role because the two cannot be separated. But now let's begin to look more deeply at some of the criteria. I'll read them again. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must be able to manage his own household well, with all dignity, keep his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he be able to care for the church of God? Scriptures go on further to say he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by, by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. 
The second major idea that you have to get from verses, well, you can get from verses 2 through uh, uh, 7 there, is this, is that there is a biblical imperative for character over competence. Now, how do we arrive at that condition? How do we arrive at that conversation? Let's look at the list. Keep the list up there on the screen. I want you to know that of the 14 criteria outlined there, there's a 14 to 2 ratio of character over competence. There are two things that represent a technical competence, the ability to teach and the ability to want manage one's household. The rest of them are all character traits that that leader is expected to, to uphold. Now, it doesn't mean that the Lord wants people who know nothing, who just happen to be nice guys running the church. But there is a premium placed on the kind of character that undergirds those technical competencies. How many of you have ever taken a referral of maybe a carpenter or some other skilled trade, like maybe an electrician, somebody to come and finish your basement, a plumber, and uh, you saw this person's work? And you knew that they were highly skilled. They did incredible work. You looked at your neighbor's basement. Man, this is, this is perfect. You looked at the, some of the structures that they had built. Man, this is, this is awesome. You looked at a kitchen that they remodeled. Man, this is great. Who did this for you? And they give you a business card. This person comes over to your house and happens to do some work. And then later, after they do the work, maybe a code inspector comes over and find out that the work is not being done to code. Little nuances that you, the end user, could not detect with the naked eye. All you saw was skill, but underneath that, there was the cutting of corners. Now the entire project is compromised. Maybe the whole kitchen has to be torn out. Maybe the electrical has to be redone. Maybe the, ba- the basement or the deck has to be demolished. But this is exactly what happens when we become a people who uh, 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 fall for and allow and like skill alone without the corresponding character underneath that makes those skills worth it. So it's not enough just to have the right skill set. The Lord demands that his leaders also have the right mindset and also, if this is a word, the right heart set. It's character over competence. But there's another ratio. Put that big list of criteria back on the screen for me. It's not just a 14 to 2 character over the competence ratio. There's another one there. It's also an 8 to 1 relationship over results. Look at how many of these have to do with our particular relationships. Must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, that's relational. Sober-minded, self-control, respectable, that's relational. Hospitable, that's relational. Able to teach, yes, we covered that. Not drunk, not violent, not given to violence, but gentle, not quarrelsome, that's relational. Not a lover of money, must be able to manage his own household, that's relational. Must not be a recent convert, must have a great testimony outside of the church. That's relational. There is this eight to one relationship over, again, viewing the quality of that person's relationship building capacity over against the results that they may be able to get. Does that make sense? But then I want you to see the big four. Right there splattered in the middle of the passage are four things that all proceed with the word not. Verse three, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And then if you go even further, not a recent convert, but we'll deal with that in a moment. What's up with the four knots? Look at them carefully and look at them one more time. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. You notice anything about those? They represent the typical tendencies that we turn to as vices when the bottom falls out of life. Alcohol, money, fits of rage, and arguments. In other words, the the great pressure of leadership in ministry, if the person is a novice, 
in all likelihood will drive that person to spoil the great vices that are still at work within our culture today, given to alcohol given to a love of money. I mean, when we think about some of the great perils and scandals uh, that, have, that have just waylaid the church throughout time and history, drunkenness, misprioritization, and mismanagement of money, quarrels, the inability to handle conflicts, and obviously the inability to, to have self-control over one's own sexual urges. But you'll notice that, 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 that the imperative of character over competence comes to us because leadership is weighty and th there, there, there must be certain criteria that we meet. And these criteria are not casual. It isn't just a grocery list of morality principles. You'll note that each one of them have direct import into one's leadership capacity. You see, the greatest challenges of ministry are rarely solved by better strategy, but they are often a call to deeper dependency. When a ministry finds itself faced with its darkest hours, it, they aren't looking for a strategy guru to come in and tell us where to put the bounce house or how to kick off our new kids' ministry. What really happens is we need people who dig deep and get before God and have a great sense of dependency and their view of what to do when the chips are down is not to crawl into a hole and go into their respective vices, but to begin fighting with the tools given to us by the Christ. And that is to lunge into him. And it demands character to do that. This is why there's such a heavy emphasis on character over competence in this list. Let's read a little bit further, verses eight through 13. Verses eight through 13, we begin with the deacons list. Likewise, deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. And if they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not a slanderer, uh, uh, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let a deacon, let, e let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Did you see that? I know you did, because you've been following it. Have you not noticed this incredible interweaving or, or kind of correlation of faith life and family life? I mean, it's hard to just miss that, that every time you go through one of the lists, both, like both of those, these roles place a high premium on what my family life is like, as well as my faith life. Now, this is an important thing for us to consider because we live in a culture that loves to compartmentalize. This is who I am at work. This is who I am at church. This is who I am out with the, you know, when we're playing racquetball, tennis, bowling, pick your thing, golf, right? We, we, we live, not double agents, like we have the capacity to live as quadruple agents. We live deeply compartmentalized lives. And so the Lord demands that there be an impartial focus. So first, what are the implications of position and practice? Secondly, what are the imperatives of character over competence? And third, uh, an impartial focus on both the family life and the faith life. Why? Why such a heavy emphasis on the family life and the faith life as a combined proving ground for quality leadership in the body of Christ? Why? 
I believe that verse nine gives us a clear clue. Deacons must likewise be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy or dishonest gain. Sounds very similar to the previous list. Verse nine, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. You know why? The mystery of faith impacts every part of life. Now, what exactly is the mystery of faith? If you have to look at your Bibles, this one won't be on the screen, but Paul defines the mystery of faith, the mystery of godliness, right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, talking about Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. That is a snapshot of the gospel. So the great mystery of faith that must be held with a clear conscience by the deacon is the gospel. If the gospel is growing deeply and with clear conscience, if the gospel is searching my life, and as often as I, as the gospel would bump up against an area of reproof and correction, I'm running to the throne and having that corrected and repenting. This is the gospel, the mystery of faith and godliness being held in a clear conscience. In other words, it didn't say the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the faith being held with clear memorization. It's not enough just to know it located in the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. It's not enough just to know where the gospel is located in the text. It wants to know where the gospel is located in the life. Can you hold those principles with a clear conscience? You can't hold something with clear conscience unless it's actively working on the conscience and ironing out what we know to be the innate wrinkles in all of our consciences. So the mystery of the faith should be impacting every part of life. It should be growing, and it can't just be limited to my faith life. So in other words, for me, as one of your leaders, it's not enough that I just know the gospel in a very theological way. It must be robustly evident in my life in a very practical way. This is what you should require of me, of us who lead you, of any leader that we present before you to be affirmed. This is what you're looking for. The impartial focus on family life and faith life. One is given to us by the answer, by the mystery of the faith should impact every part of our lives. Now some of you may be kind of emotionally, mentally, spiritually, even chilling right now because you're like, I don't want to be an overseer, or an elder, a shepherd or a deacon. This message is not for me. It's not the case. Because I want you to realize that the reason that the Bible places such a high premium on these things for us, the leaders, to be equipped in is because that's what we're supposed to model before you and lead you in. You're not off the hook. The mystery of the faith should impact every area of life. But look at verse 11. It answers that question even more so for us. Why this deep interweaving of the family and faith life? Verse 10, and let them also be tested first, and then when they serve as deacons, they, if they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. You see, the model of the family is mirrored in the church. It is impossible to read any salient text on ecclesiology and see, not see family language. Brothers and sisters, younger brothers and sisters, older brothers and sisters, treated and appealed to as fathers. 
This is the language of the text. But in the most ultimate context, the Bible tells us that the church is Christ's wife. It's his bride. So then the implication would be from, from both elders and deacons, the reason that there's a deep sense of call that the family life and the home life needs to be intact. Because Paul said it this way, how can you manage the church if you can't manage your home? Or how can you treat my bride well if you can't treat your bride well? This is the place where my wife says amen, not, <laughs> not the guy in the back. <laughs> awesome. <sighs> oh, man. All right, so the mystery of the faith, the mystery of the faith should impact every part of life. The model of the family is mirrored in church life. But even more deeply than the treatment of one's bride, think about the treatment of the Lord's children. I mean, the, the, the greatest of all time, the greatest discipleship passage of all time, 2 Timothy 2.2, right? And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That is the, that is the locus classicus of discipleship. How can one effectively disciple God's children if they are not also discipling their own children? Therefore, treatment of my bride and management of my, management of my household and the discipleship of my children become the proving grounds of whether or not I actually qualify for a role such as this or anyone who desires such a role. But the beautiful thing is this. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord looks at all of our lives holistically, even if we are trying to live compartmentally. Regardless of where you aspire for leadership, or whether you aspire for leadership in the church or not, we see the Bible telling us clearly that the person who is faithful over a few things will be made faithful over many. That applies to us all. We are all striving to be constantly conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in every way. So even if church leadership is not one of your aspirations, this idea of character over competence must be one of all of our preoccupations, as well as understanding the, the deep connection between practice and position, as well as the fact that there is a combination between family life and faith life. We must not abandon our faith and put it in a jar. We must not put it on the shelf. We must not shut it off on Sunday night, but it must follow us in between the Sundays. Our faith life and our family life and all aspects of the gospel should be growing constantly in our lives. And the reason is, it's not just for leadership candidates, but we all should want to stand before the Lord and be judged as faithful. Do you realize that one of the great challenges against those Pharisees that weren't doing their job well was that they compartmentalized, while they didn't have the gospel per se, they compartmentalized the truth of God into just certain segments of their lives? That was Jesus' primary critique, that you, that, you, that you hold tightly to the truth of God in this area of life, but you don't let it grow into this area. So this idea of letting the gospel grow, God's resident truth of salvation, grow into all categories of our life, this is an occupation and a call to every single one of us, not just for leaders. But glory be to God that he has entrusted the governess of his church to those who are leading and living robustly in the area of showing us how it's done. I mean, the Bible itself is a great book of show and tell. I mean, God constantly telling us what to do and then through Christ showing us how it's done. And he expects that, that motif of show and tell to live deeply in the lives of all of its believers and especially its leaders. 
What the Bible says or what the Bible tells, my life, our life as leaders should show that. But guess what? For you and I too, who have been called to be stewards and leaders of and with the gospel outside of these doors, our lives should also be a great game or great romance of show and tell. Well, what the Bible says we ought to do, our lives are relatively showing what it ought to do. And I am simply a tour guide showing you how it's done, walking you through the text and pointing out of the window. Over here, we have the book of Titus. And in that, you'll notice blah, blah, blah. That's all I am. I'm just a tour guide with a mic. I'm no better than you. But that's my job is to lead us on this great tour through God's word and show and to tell exactly what gospel and implementation looks like. This is what you should require of your leaders. This is what you should reflect and look for in yourselves, even if you do not desire to be a church leader. Amen. That one's for you. Yes, brother. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning, thanking you and praising you for your faithfulness to give us absolute clarity on what to look for when it comes to the governance of your body. We thank you, Lord God, that uh, the list is not arbitrary. We thank you, Lord God, that the list is not like man would look for things on the outside, but you who look at the heart. It gives us a ready manual to, 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 to to inspect what's happening in the heart of individuals, but not just those who lead us, but also to look carefully at ourselves. We thank you for that beautiful and reigning example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, but yet at the same time is our shepherd. We thank you for, for the beautiful example of our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel who, who sits at the right hand, but yet would come and die on the cross to serve, to seek and save that which is lost. We thank you for that incredible servant leadership model that was magnified by our Lord and that you in turn commissioned to all of us to follow. My prayer today, oh God, is for those who, who are sitting here and saying to themselves, man, I thought that level of implementation and application of the gospel were just for those who wanted to be preachers. And Lord God, they're figuring out, no, that's for all of us. We want the gospel to grow into all areas of our lives. I pray, oh God, for that person who is, who is striving for that, that you would meet them where they are and show them, oh God, some of those areas where the gospel has yet to, to take traction in their lives. I pray for that person, oh God, who has heard this word gospel multiple times but still can't quite put their finger on it. I pray, oh God, that that person's heart would be arrested to know that you who sat on high because of the, the, your, your compelling love knew that it wasn't enough just to watch us from on high, but you wanted to come in, Lord God, into our space, put on our shoes, live this life, be tempted as we are, but yet be sinless, and to die in our place, that you might lead us out of sin into redemption, based on not only your example, but that incredible power, because as you were raised from the dead, oh God, you freed the shackles and the power of the devil and sin that held us back. I pray, oh God, for that person who does not know you and does not know your gospel, that as your Holy Spirit is doing its work, that they would seek for you, oh God. Lord God, I just pray, um, I pray for leaders, current and future, in the body of Christ, as we find ourselves regularly in the crosshairs of scandal and critique that those who you have selected, those who you have chosen, and those that you affirm, O oh God, 
would indeed live robust, consistent lives and in no way bring shame to the name of Jesus, nor let our lifestyles be a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.